0: And open your Bibles, if you have them, or a Bible app, or a Bible in a seat back near you, to Genesis chapter 11. And we're looking at the second half of that. And um, yeah, you may see that and say, "Huh, we're going to read this today." Uh, and the answer is yes. But today's going to be a little bit of a, a different um, kind of sermon in some way. Aristotle, used by the, uh, lived by this um, triptych regarding his his rhetoric, his speech, argumentation. Uh, By the way, a triptych I just recently learned from uh, Valerie Elmquist, that as uh, an artist, that a a triptych is a a picture displayed across three panels. Um, And however you might set that up, I'm not going to go beyond where my, I've already gone beyond where my knowledge takes me, so I'm going to stop. But Aristotle in this triptych said, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. And then tell them what you told them, right? And that's used in uh, speech and presentation classes from middle school all the way up through graduate school in a variety of forms, in one way or another. I'm going to extend that a little bit today. So I think I'm taking it officially out of bounds for what a triptych actually is, but we'll see. (laughs) 27 sermons ago, I told you what I was going to tell you. Then over the course of 25 sermons, I, or we, with the help of Pastor Brian, told you. And today, this morning, I plan to tell you what I told you and connect it to what's coming in Genesis 12, which we will pick up in the next calendar year in 2023. We're going to take a look at some other mini-series here uh, in the fall and the turn of the calendar year. So that's our plan for this morning. Uh, Imagine you're uh, leading a band of about 2 million refugees who've recently been freed from slavery in Egypt, You've seen more in your lifetime, more pain in your lifetime, more that is unfair in this world in your lifetime than you thought you ever would. You're about to enter a, a land that was promised to your forefathers. This land has mighty warriors in it that stand heads and shoulders above you, and they are evil. I mean, they are immoral to ways that you could not even imagine these immoral people have no problem taking your life in ways that are fair or unfair. They just want to get the job done, which is to keep you dead or make you dead. I guess you can't keep you dead if you're alive, but get the idea, right? It's an impossible feat for humanity. Uh, But your recently deceased leader, Moses, has prepared an essential gift for you. It's a gift that you need in order to be able to understand who your God is, who your king is in this polytheistic world, meaning a world where many gods are worshipped and cherished and prized. By the way, gods there is all lowercase g because there is only one God. But you live in a world and in a way where it's easy to forget that because all of the nations, all of the people surrounding you are worshipping their polytheistic gods and their life looks pretty good. Looks pretty good out there. Looks pretty prosperous over there. Who your God is, who you are, warts and all, sins and all, and why you must serve this wonderful king and all of his majesty. You're going to be told how your king has judged those who live in direct opposition to his commands and how your king has won many battles before you with strategy and resources that no other king on this planet has. Not all of the kings, gods of this world together contain the resources of the God who knows no end to his knowledge, wisdom, strategy, creative prowess, and power. No one. And why you were made for this very purpose. That's critically important to understand why you're created to go do something that seems impossible to do. Wait, Lord, you want me to live my life for this? Do you see how big they are? Do you see how big I am? Have you seen what I've done in your life? Have you seen the battles I have won for you? So your king, the king of all kings, has a master plan that no one can rival. And your leader has given you a gift in the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy that contains this master plan this information it's it's more than a battle plan to conquer it's a crucial history intentionally crafted to remind you that history demonstrates that god keeps his promises so you and i are to live our life in faith-filled obedience We need to be reminded they needed to be reminded that their ancestors failings had consequences and they needed to know that they needed to know that their enemies ancestors had had different consequences. And and while they may see them at times living in what seems like prosperity and wonder and victory in the land that they're supposed to go have, they need to recognize that they are living under the judgment of God. They're living under the curse of God which extends even to the days that you and I see now in the Middle East. This curse extends. You must see that over and over again, God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. And history shows us over and over again that God does everything he says he will. And he does it perfectly. In all of his ways, as we just sang. You must worship Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God, who's creator God, far above anything that we, can, uh, that we can imagine having a connection with. The God who made the universe is also the God who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. How can this be? Only one way. This is the God, we're used to hearing the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is also the God of... Adam, Seth, and Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, who who walked with God and was not, for God took him, Genesis 5 tells us. Methuselah said to have lived 969 years, the longest lifespan according to uh, the Bible. And Lamech, Lamech, who fathered uh, Noah, and Shem, and Arpashad, and Shelah, and Eber, and Peleg, and Reu, and Sirug, and Nahor, and Terah, who fathered Abram, who is Abraham. And that's the cliff note of our scripture reading this morning, that paragraph. And then from Terah, as I mentioned, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, and Joseph. Genesis is the true story of the only creator God, written to show Israel their origins and some, some of God's purposes. Moses wanted them to know that God is the all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-sufficient creator God who moved through history to bring them to where they were, poised to take the land of Canaan because of God's mighty power and God's purposeful plan. But God's purpose is... For these Israelites preparing to enter the land of Canaan stretch way beyond the book of Genesis. We've only covered the first 11 chapters of Genesis and it stands, we've still got chapters 12 through 50 to cover. Now the speed picks up quite a bit. I'll tell you that as we get back into Genesis 12 and following next year. But beyond Genesis, beyond the... Pentateuch, beyond the Old Testament, to you and I today, the promises of God are very richly rooted in everything that God teaches us in Genesis. This book of beginnings is our unshakable foundation for nearly everything else we learn from God's word here forward. And what I mean, concepts are introduced in Genesis that aren't fully answered or fully depicted or described in Genesis, but they're filled out in more detail. They're brought to a greater, stronger conclusion. More of the picture begins to be seen. But I said, God shows us some of his wisdom, some of his plan in Genesis 1 through 11. We don't see it all. And we certainly don't see all of the details of this plan. We've seen God's sovereignty in human history establishing and dispersing the nations most recently and as a result of the Tower of Babel and mankind's pride which every one of us in here to one degree or another experience that pride. Just wait till the next conversation you have where you and another person that you love disagree. You'll see it's right there. Just it's right there right over its head. I want you to notice this pattern as we read this uh, genealogy here. we will put this up on the screen for you here. So when, can I get you, there we go. Thank you very much. I'm so thankful to see teens so deeply involved in our tech ministry. I just got to tell you, thank you. When so-and-so depicted by the yellow lived X number of years, He fathered his son, so-and-so. And And the father lived after he fathered the son X number of years. And he had other sons and daughters. Now, there's an important pattern I want you to notice as we're reading through this. We see this genealogy, what is uh, a a rhetorical device used throughout the book of Genesis uh, when ending and or starting another section. And I want you to notice here this particular pattern. Uh, one is just this. It would be the top part of everything that's on the screen right now. It would be as if I were to say, "When Mamagee was 34 years old, he fathered Braden." And Matthew lived fourteen years after he fathered Braden. Or live at, and he lived, you know, uh, after he fathered Braden X number of years, right? To get to forty eight. And he had other sons, or he had another son. Sorry, Skyler. We see this pattern in this particular genealogy. And part of what that is telling us is this Moses is keying in here. Moses is keying in. We've seen him deal with people who become nations in chapter 10. And Moses is keying in here on a particular line of thought that God is raising up for himself a particular people through a particular line through whom a particular man, capital M, God, man, Jesus, will come. And the judgment that God is dealing out to everyone who disobeys him, the judgment for those who are, or the discipline for those who are his children and the judgment and curses for those who are not his will be paid for by one who will be the curse. You see, because once someone is cursed, they're not gods. God disciplines those he loves. Just as a father disciplines his children these are the generations of Shem when Shem was 100 years old and he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and he had other sons and daughters that means there's a whole storyline of families here that we're not told does it mean it's not true? no does it mean it's fiction? no Might some of it be reeled in secular history? Maybe. What we know is that Shem fathered Arpashad when he was 100 years old, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and he had other sons and daughters. I'm just going to pause. Do not be caught up with the pride of feeling like you Must know it all to understand God's purpose. Better yet, to trust God's purposes, His commands. To fully obey the Lord, you need what God has told you. To fully be a faithful, obedient Christian, you need what God has. Told you. When Arpashad lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shayla, and Arbashad lived after he fathered Shayla 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Guess what? Whole lot of stories, whole lot of lineage, a whole lot of other stuff going on there that we don't know. It's okay. Just relax. Because what we do know is Eber lived 34 years after he, followed, after he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. You see the theme. And Peleg lived 30 years; he fathered Reu, and Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years, had other sons and daughters. By the way, Peleg, Peleg gets us to the generation that sees the Tower of Babel and beyond. That is until the end of his 209 years when he dies in the fulfillment of what God promised would happen, which, as history demonstrates, happened. When Reu lived 32 years after he fathered Sirach, and Reu lived after he fathered Sirach 207 years and he had other sons and daughters. Sirach lived 30 years and he fathered Nahor, and Sirach lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years, and he fathered Terah. Terah, I'm sorry, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. This won't be up on the screen for you. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran, Lot. Do you notice how we're starting to, now we're starting to see some names that become more familiar to us in the Old Testament. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, remember? Abram's father in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. starting to sound a little more familiar. And Abram and Nahor took wives and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. We're getting more specific again the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. We just plummeted to, here's 200 years, here's 200 years, here's 400 years, here's 300 years, other sons and daughters, other sons and daughters. Oh, by the way, this one married this gal. This one married this gal and she's barren. Full stop. I thought that the line from Adam was going to come all the way through Abram and his wife. But hold up, she's barren. At this point in history, that is all we know. At this point in history, that is all we need to know. To follow God obediently, faithfully, walking in faith. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. And Tara died. Do you remember several months ago when we were back in Genesis chapter, by the way, guys on whoever's on screen back there, I'm totally off, and it's okay. Chapter five, this genial, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Well, guess what? All these people lived two hundred and some years and they had other sons and daughters, and guess what? They died, because we know here Tara died. Because God said, if you eat of the tree, you're going to die. And history demonstrates that God keeps his promises. Now, the Lord said to Abram, and I'm going to stop there. This would be like an end of season commercial break. Roll the credits. We'll come back to this story next year. But let's remember some of what we've seen. Disobedience results in discipline and judgment or curses. God disciplines his people, but he judges or curses those who are not his. And I want you to see how this has unfolded. I'm going to tell you what I told you over the last 25 sermons. God blesses Adam and Eve. He places them in the garden, perfect garden, as innocent people free to fellowship with him and enjoy, listen to this phrase, the blessings of obedience. Brothers and sisters, you and I live in a day, and by the way, I mean for the last many hundreds of years. We live in a time where we believe That God owes us our blessings and therefore they're not in fact blessings. They are what we're owed. Not so. Do you know why? Because we're created. The very fact that that we are created means that we are dependent on their giver and the sustainer of life to breathe. Adam and Eve are placed in this perfect garden, innocent people, free people to do everything that God had commanded them to do. Parents, you know this, you tell your kids what you think is going to be helpful to keep them safe, to keep them healthy to help them learn because you love them. Our minds and our hearts are just all so bound up in the search for what we desire, what we think we're owed, that we forget commands are good from a loving parent, a loving grandparent. We grimace at obedience. We don't like it. We fight it. Own it. You don't like it. If I told you right now, Oak Grove Church, I want you to stand up and I want you to do X, Y, and Z, you would be like, who do you think you are telling me what to do? You wouldn't say it. Oh, I'd do the same thing, by the way. It's just So we're on level ground. Genesis 6, remember, shows us that uh, the wickedness of mankind is great on the earth and that every intention, everything man sets out to do, wants to achieve or accomplish of their hearts is only evil continually. Why do I like to speed? Why do I like to speed? I haven't seen a speed limit sign in 10 miles. Well, but I know I'm on a country road, and I know that the state law says the country road speed limits are... I don't actually know what they are right now, but some of you law-abiding citizens probably know... (laughs) Oh, you think I like to speed just because I like to do whatever I want to do. Maybe it is that I end up choosing to speed because I misprioritize my time and I stay engaged too long in this thing I'm doing over here. And then because I've mismanaged my time, I get in the car. and Now I have to speed rather than be late and just own up for the fact that I mismanaged my time. It's not just about a speed limit about how I'm choosing to use my time and my resources. Why do I get angry? Because every intention of the thoughts of my heart is only evil all the time. Sometimes there's righteous anger, to be sure. Had a conversation with a friend recently, and we were talking about some righteous anger. Most of it's not. In case you're wondering, try to figure out what your percentage of your ratio is. Why are you jealous? Why do you cover your pain? alcohol or avoiding relationships or seeking refuge in the arm of another person, which will never satisfy you. You know how you know that you get married. That's not a knock on marriage. Marriage is wonderful. Anybody who's married knows that only God will satisfy you, not your spouse. It's not their job to satisfy you. It's your job to love them. I know I just like flipped up the whole world and purpose of marriage there for you. You love them. You serve them. And as you lean into the Lord, as you trust the Lord, he will satisfy you. Don't look to your spouse for that. That's a recipe for disaster. But why do we struggle with it? Every intention of the thoughts of our hearts only evolve all the time. I could go on and I could go on and I could go on. First man and woman distrusted God's motives, his words, and they break his protective commands. So in his love, God disciplines them. He doesn't curse them. He disciplines them. He curses Satan. He curses the ground. He disciplines his people. Let me ask, whose words are you more inclined to believe? Satan's or God's? For Adam and Eve, it was Satan's. Did God really say... Yeah, it's gray enough for me. Let's go. Whose wisdom are you more challenged to believe, more ready to understand? God's or the world's? Which is Satan's, by the way. Make no mistake. Adam and Eve desired to be like God, so they believed what Satan had told them. He didn't have to work very hard to convince them. He just poised the right question at the right time. Why do we do the things we do? What goes wrong with all of this? Hang in there, friends. There is hope. We've only gotten to Adam and Eve, and I have to speed it up quite a bit here. This genealogy is a recording of history that shows us God is focusing our attention on how he is bringing hope in a very particular way to a very particular people designed by God to accomplish his purposes. Whoa, what does all that mean? I have lots of questions. You don't need to have all of the answers to obey the Lord faithfully today. What you need is what God has told you to prioritize him and love him with all of your heart and to obey what he has told you as he has revealed in his word. Sin has grave consequences. And yes, I do mean that in a dual way. Massively significant consequences. And yes, that will land every one of us in a grave. But even in discipline, God shows mercy and he covers our sin. But he must do it in a particular way, through a particular people, with a particular man. Because Jesus is God and man. And in order for Jesus to be 100% God and 100% man, he must come through a human lineage. And he does. So he promises a Savior is going to be born through Eve, Adam's line, and the first to sin with Adam, this pair of male and female, who, by the way, uh, didn't seem like I should need to say this, but Eve is the only one who can become pregnant. She's the only female. I I know we're laughing. So God brings his man through one particular line for one particular purpose. I do want to tell you, friends, you're not mean, you're not wrong, you're not unkind, you're not hateful, you're not using hate speech when you say that men are men, that boys are male boys, and that women are women, and that the only ones who can have children are women, moms not birthing parents. When you say everything and anything that God has given us in this book, you stand on truth. There is no my truth and your truth. There is truth. And you must stand on on truth your very lives depend on it your grandchildren's lives depend on it your great 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 grandchildren's lives depend on the reality friends brothers and sisters that you and i stand on truth and you're going to be accused and you're going to be of a line and they're going to throw us in jail sooner than later prepare your children To go to jail. Prepare your children to get passed over for a job. Prepare your children. Prepare your children by doing difficult things in obedience to what God has revealed to you now. So that when you tell them to stand up for truth, when you tell them to be willing to be flogged or to go to jail or to be maligned, uh, maligned when you tell them to that it's okay that people are making fun of them, that people are pointing their finger and laughing at them. It is okay because you've shown them what it's like to do difficult things, to do hard things out of obedience to the Lord. Uh, One pastor, as we talk about everything that we need for life and godliness is in this book. Pastor Rob Reno, pastor out in Chicago, Quoted in another book, and another pastor told him this well, to, to help me understand the sufficiency of Scripture. What, how do I describe that easily? And this pastor, over lunch or coffee or something, said, "The Bible tells us everything important about everything important. Right? Your list of outfits is not in there. How to tie your shoes is not in there. What to eat, for the most part, is not in there. The Bible gives us everything important about everything important." And he describes it like this in this little book, Reclaiming the Sufficiency of Scripture. Now, I know it's, I'm telling you that everything you need is in here, and then I'm holding up another book. Yeah, I, I get that. It's because other people help us understand what's in this book. This this Word of God teaches us Second. So Timothy 3.16 says, It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I'll put this up on a slide for you. I keep giving these cues because I'm way off of my pattern for this morning. And that's okay. Teaching is how to think right. Reproof, how not to think wrong. Correction, how not to act wrong. Training in righteousness, how to act right. how to think right, how not to think wrong, how not to act wrong, and how to act right. I have five of these. If there are five people who would like to come take one right now and you think you'll read it, or you think, I don't like to read but my kids like to read, so I'll have them read it and give it to me, (laughs) or tell me about it. I'm not kidding. If you want one, Come take one. I saw somebody was like, there's one more over there that's kind of holding out. Friends, we build our lives on this book. Sin always brings God's judgment. I'm going to move fairly quickly here. After Adam and Eve, we see that Cain killed his brother. And there's judgment that comes from that, right? Cain says, ah, wait, if people see me, they'll kill me. Even in judgment, God shows mercy, and he gives him some kind of a mark. We don't have to pontificate too much about the mark. What we need to understand is, even in his judgment there, he gave mercy. He did not kill Cain on the spot, which is what Cain deserved, and it is what you and I deserve, friends. He fulfilled his promises and he brings another chosen one who is Seth. Now, do you remember a little while ago, I was reading this genealogy and we got to Abram who married Sarai, who was barren. Ah, God's plan. It's in the gutter. God's chosen son, Abel. He got killed. I guess we know what he was chosen for. Because now God brings Seth. God judges his people in the form of a flood, wipes nearly every human and animal from the face of the earth, except two of every kind, and eight people. But God, he established a covenant with Noah. I will never destroy the earth like this again. Noah was righteous. Listen, until he wasn't. Righteous doesn't mean that he was perfect, that he had not sinned. It meant he was a man. To borrow from the Psalms, a man after God's own heart like David. He followed God. But he was was righteous in his day. It's a comparative term to other people. He was righteous. He followed the Lord. But then he sinned by getting drunk. And I want you to hear this, parents, grandparents. You need to hear this. Friends, you need to hear this. His sin gave opportunity for his son to sin. He did not make his son sin but his sin gave opportunity for his son to sin. So before I go on a quick point of application, parents, I just want to ask you, is there sin in your life that is giving opportunity for your children to sin? Is there sin in your life that you're harboring? Is there, are there ways where you are actively disobedient to the Lord? Oh, it might not seem like it to other people. But there's something, a sin of omission, many sins of omission maybe that you're not doing that is teaching your children to just live however you want. But then when we stand up and we say you're going to get thrown in prison when you stand on truth, you're going to be called uh, someone who speaks with hate when you say that God made them male and female and that only women can have children. This is massively pertinent for our lives right now, friends. Are you showing them that it's tough but wonderful to follow the Lord. I don't mean perfectly. Don't look for any way to wiggle out. If you know, if you're wiggling, that's the answer. We should all be wiggling, honestly, in some ways. Do you want to hold your children, do you want to hold on to that sin to the detriment of your children's faith? I know it seems heavy-handed, but it's just true. Because if you persist in your sin... While you tell your children to follow the Lord, they will see right through the disconnect. Another one of Satan's lies. Did God really say? You know what that feels like to us? Sounds like to us? This will only affect you, this won't affect other people. Wrong friends. Do you want to sin so badly? Do you want it so much that you're willing to sacrifice the priority of teaching your kids to follow the Lord? Pastor Matt, how is this related to this text? Well, I will tell you because one generation to another fathers, parents made decisions whether they would follow the Lord or whether they would go their own way and generations reap the benefits generations reap the judgment or the curse. Let me go another step further and then I'm going to close and break this into a two-week sermon. Oh, I'm almost to the end. Parents, if your children are adults, you know that You're always their parent. Some of you are praying for your kids who are living and following the world. Maybe they made a profession of faithful and they're younger. younger. Maybe they maybe they haven't, but they got baptized. And you just you just gotta believe they're going to heaven because generally speaking, they're pretty nice. That's not the gospel. It's not the truth. Maybe your adult children need you to come to them and acknowledge your failure. You don't have to hang your head in shame. Jesus paid the price. And so with confident humility, you can say, I mean, my kids are only 12 and 9. I can't imagine if you've got kids that are 15, 25, 35, 45, 50. Because I know the sin I've modeled before my children. I know the sin I've had to go before them, before my whole family and say, I have sinned. I'm sorry. I sinned against God and I sinned against you. I know my sin affects you. Will you forgive me? Go all the way. I'm sorry. No. Go all the way. To relational restoration. I have sinned against God. I've sinned against you and I am sorry. I know the consequences are disastrous. I know the consequences are painful. Parents. Grandparents. Maybe the children you're praying for need to see a father or mother at 55 or 70 or 80 say, Oh, I'm sorry I blew it with you. I'm sorry I I said one thing and I did another. I'm sorry I fill in the blank. You weep for your children, I know you do. I've prayed with some of you as tears flowed, praying for your adult children. Oh, you just want them to walk with the Lord. Why? Well, in part because you want your grandkids to walk with the Lord. And maybe the balm of a humble apology is just what they need Now don't don't, go, don't don't go too far with that Well because I sinned I ruined it for generation. no That's too much for you to bear too They're also responsible for their own decision making They also have God's word made available to them available to them They also see throughout all creation that every man is without excuse And they have the word of God in the United States of America more available than almost any nation on this planet. So don't carry what God doesn't mean for you to carry. But don't excuse what God doesn't mean for you to excuse. Don't manipulate. Humbly ask. God's judgment came in the form of a curse that we still see to this day as Ham sinned against his father by making fun of him. And Ham's sin son was, well, they were cursed. God's judgment came in the form of confusion with their speech, dispersing them all over the face of the earth at the Tower of Babel. They wanted to be like God. Disobedience results in discipline and judgment or curses, He disciplines his people and he judges or curses those who aren't his. We see it all throughout the Bible, friends. Now, it's a truth that we don't like. It's a truth that, I'll be honest with you, has a lot of questions. That's okay. You don't have to have the answers to the questions. Just look at the patterns in Scripture. I want to conclude with a, a story from Ken Ham. Ken Ham is a Founder of Answers in Genesis and the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. And this is a long quote, so hang in there with me, but I'm closing here. I know that's like the pastor's greatest lie. You laughed a little too easily. And here's the thing whether you think the earth is six or seven thousand years old or a little bit older than that. Okay. Whether you think the earth is millions of years or billions of years, I'm just going to say you're wrong on the authority of God's word and the way that God stitches together a very precise timeline. There are a couple of areas, a couple of areas of uncertainty. But I want you to hear what he says. Parents, lean in heavily, please. I'll never forget what my parents taught me. Here's just some of what they communicated to me that remains indelibly impressed on my mind. When I discussed, oh no, no, yeah, this is his dad talking to him. I'll never forget, he said, what's indelibly impressed on my mind. When I I discussed the gap theory found in a particular study Bible notes, my father said, always remember the notes are inspired, I'm sorry, are not inspired like the text. The text should be the commentary on the notes. Many of you carry around a study Bible. The text is the commentary on the notes. Yes, the notes help. Yes, the notes guide. But the text of scripture is what is inspired. So it's not the other way around. And while discussing that, many Christians as well as secularists believe the earth was supposedly billions upon years, billions of years old. My father said, "I, I don't have all the answers to how they get the billions of years, but always go to the text of scripture to ensure that you are taking it as written according to the literature and the language. Always take the grammatical historical approach to interpreting scripture if you are unsure If you are then sure it doesn't allow for millions and millions of years, then there is something wrong with what others are saying. And just because we don't have the answers doesn't mean there are not answers. Just because we don't have answers does not mean there are not answers. It just means we don't know everything. And we can pray and we can ask God to show us the answer, but he may never give us some answers because only God knows everything and he expects us to trust his word. But nothing in God's word will contradict truth. When talking about Genesis, my father would say, if you can't trust Genesis, how can you trust the rest of the Bible? Because the rest depends on Genesis being true. Fathers and mothers, you'll never regret time invested by reading the Bible with your children and guess what you don't have to have all the answers you don't have to have all of the answers in fact you don't need them because the Bible eventually gives a lot of them to you not all of them but the answers that you need to follow God faithfully are there every one of them Every one of them. You and I just need to be patient enough to wait for God to show you and your family through his word. That means you don't have to be a wonderful teacher. In fact, hear me when I say that you can be a really bad teacher and a really bad reader And lead your family to put your faces before the Word of God, before the face of God. You just need to read it. You just need to ask your wife to read it. Yeah, but then I feel bad because then it's. Just say it. I'm proud. And I wish I could read better, but I don't read very well. But I'm too proud to let my wife read the Bible to our kids. And I'm willing to let the faith of my family suffer as a result. Mm, I know I was harsh. But I just am asking you, what is it? Are you uninterested? Then say, I'm uninterested. Don't say, I don't have time. Because you have time for what you're interested in. Be humble enough. So be patient enough for God to wait to show you. And be humble enough, trust me, my pride's right there too, right? My sin is crouching at the door. Same thing that the Lord said to Cain. Be humble enough to tell your children, that's a great question, I don't know the answer. But just because I don't know the answer doesn't mean there isn't an answer. God really did say these things. Every word of it. So let's read it together. Let's be patient together. Let's be humble together and learn how to obey God faithfully.